0: Well, good morning. Uh, We are continuing our series on the Psalms. We're teaching through some of our favorite Psalms through the summer. And last week we started Psalm 51, and today we're going to finish the second half of it. Now, Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance. Repentance is kind of a pretty big Christian thing. It's something we talk about a lot, um, and it's something that people misunderstand quite often. As we read some of the scriptures today, we read St. Peter, who's talking about the importance and the value of repentance. We have the words of Jesus, which is saying everyone should repent. And then we have Psalm 51, which is all about the heart of repentance. Now, for the average person who's not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, the language of repentance is probably something you consider old or antiquated, something you don't use very often. It's not like you go into your boss's office after making a mistake and go, I'm here to repent. They would find that odd, probably, right? But repentance is actually very much at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For us, it comes up in the prayers like we did today. The, um, I just forgot what it's called. Josh, what was the song you just did? I can't remember. <laughs> He's already thinking about how he would preach this better than me. <laughs> but when we, we, we begin our service with these prayers talking about open-heartedness. Search our hearts, God. Know our hearts and prepare us to receive your grace. So this open-heartedness is really at the center of the way of Jesus. What we're saying is, with repentance, is that things aren't all as they should be inside of me. Things aren't all as they should be in my life, in my relationships, in my work, and that I need an intervention in my life. Now, I know that sounds really intense, But there's something that nags within us that I think speaks to that consistently. This isn't as good as it should be. Something is broken. And we see it more easily in those around us, but then there's those moments, those quiet moments, usually before bed. You're laying in your bed trying to sleep, and what comes up for you? All the things that that you've been trying to escape and not think about. You watch two extra episodes, but the moment that... TV gets turned off and you're laying there. It's all right there again. Those are the things, the problems, the nagging instances within us that we know we need a solution. And the way of Jesus is all about providing that solution, providing that salvation, that help. That we know if I keep going in this trajectory, things are going to keep being bad. I'm going to keep making these same mistakes. This relationship that I care about is going to continue to break. So there's a desire to turn. To turn back and go, this is actually the way I want to live. But how do I do it? It's hard. It's difficult. I'm the same me that created these problems. So at the heart of the way of Jesus is, I don't want to keep going this way, living this way, so I want to turn. But in turning... I see the true state of where things are at. Who I am, the messes that I've made, that sin is even worse than I thought it was because when I was facing this way, I didn't see all of the ramifications. I didn't see all of the fallout of the way I was living. But when I turn around, I actually should see myself rightly and see the situation and how I've impacted it. And so, at first... When we turn, repent. When we turn, we see a bigger mess than we thought. Isn't that encouraging? That's a tough moment. When we we stop being so hard-hearted, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to see it. I just want to keep doing this. I'm not the problem. You're the problem. They're the problem. Everything else is the problem. But when we turn and we face it and we see it, it seems worse than we even thought we thought it was. This is the moment where we see the power of salvation. Because all the mess has a solution. All the brokenness has God's intervention in the person and work of Jesus. So Psalm 51 is about somebody who's made a colossal screw up. With major ramifications and who is turning back to God and saying, I need a solution for all of this. So let me give you a quick summary of the first seven verses of what we covered last week. Verse 1 starts with him seeing God clearly. So having turned from the way he was living, he sees God clearly, his steadfast love and abundant mercy. That's verse 1. So when he's surveying the mess, it doesn't cover up the glory and the goodness of who God is. So he sees it. The second thing he sees in verse 2 is he sees that salvation for all of this is available. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I need you to help deal with all of this. And so he sees that God's intervention and solution for the problem is at hand. And change is possible. Verse 3, he sees himself as in need of saving. So he doesn't just say, oh, look at all the mess. He looks at himself and says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's being honest about his contribution. Verse 4, he goes on and sees that the root of his sin is a deeper issue. It's rejecting God's love and goodness. The reason he ever went in that direction was because he turned away from God's love and goodness. Against you and you only have I sinned. That was the first move that started all the mess. Is essentially what he's saying. Verse 5, he sees that the sin is serious. It wasn't just a mistake, a slip-up, a stumble, or a fall. It's a real problem, and it's in his bones. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. My whole life has had this thread of iniquity at work in me. And more specifically, it's not just in his bones, it's in his heart. It's in his story. And it's been passed down to him from his parents and their parents and their parents' parents. And that sin is a condition that you're born into and born with. This is what he's seeing. When he looks and surveys the mess, he's going, I sinned against you. I've I've done these sins. I chose them. But also it's at work in me. In my very being. Has anyone ever seen the movie Zootopia? There's this little fox <laughs> where he says, it's, it's in my dinner, my DNA. My kids always use that phrase. It's in my dinner. That's essentially what we're, we're looking at here is that sin is in all of it. It's worked its way into everything about me. And this is why we can have strengths that are also weaknesses. This is why We can love certain things that are good, but somehow there's this peace in it of like, but it's also poison, and I don't quite get it. Sin's at work in all of it. Verse six, he sees the need to be completely honest with himself, with God, and with others, that he's saying God delights in the truth and in the inward being. So if we're, it's kind of like going to the doctor. And saying, well, I have all these problems, but you don't actually want to talk about the main root issue. And the doctor's trying to help you diagnose what's wrong. And you're like, well, I'm just kind of tired. But really, you haven't been able to get out of bed in weeks. or I've kind of lost my appetite, but I never eat. You know the problem, but you don't want to talk about it. Us guys are real good at that. I know I'm not feeling good. I know I'm sick. I Googled some stuff. I'm pretty sure it's fatal, but I'm not going to go to the doctor. Right? Here, what we see from the psalmist is like this brutal honesty to go. Let's really talk, let's let's list it all. If everywhere I can find sin, I want to name it because I want the solution, the salvation, to be thorough, as thorough or more thorough than the sin. Isn't that? Doesn't that seem admirable? Verse 7. He sees that the solution, the salvation, is going to come in the form of a sacrifice. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash, and I will be whiter than snow. He sees this offering is going to cover and fix the sin, but he wants it to be personal. He's seeing that all of his problems to interact with this sacrifice, which is all pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus. That's where we stopped last week. Why couldn't I have done that that quick last week? That's the question. And at that moment that we stopped at last week in verse 7, it's this beautiful moment where we see the beauty of the hyssop, this fragrant, fragrant fragrant flower symbolic of the humanity of Jesus and its perfect goodness, covered in the blood, the sacrifice of Christ being applied to Him, the person. That's the good news of the Gospel. Jesus' humanity knows you and understands you, but the sacrifice of Christ and the crucifixion saves you. And you need both. Then verse 8 What we see here is that God's design is not that he would remain broken by sin, but that he would be mended. And here's where we're going to see the back end of the story here. Verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Here's what I think is happening in this statement. He desires to again return to joy and gladness. Don't we all? But he's also saying here, You weren't wrong to give me consequences. But I ask that you would carry me through the consequences and restore me beyond them. Here's here's what I think happens. When the follower of Jesus truly, honestly repents, comes and trusts in the sacrifice of Jesus, all of the temporary, real-life consequences don't just magically go away, do they? But there's some confusion in that point for a lot of people. Going, I repented, I asked for Jesus' forgiveness, I received it as good as I know, and nothing seemed to change because my consequences are still there. You ever felt that? Just me? Okay? Here's part of how we believe in the gospel having been forgiven, but still living in the reality of the consequences of our mistakes. It's to know that He loves you enough to carry you through them. To face them and carry you through them and that your life, your future would not be defined by them. Does that make sense? So here's an extreme case. Kind of works with Psalm 51. Let's say you have a murderer in prison who comes to Jesus. Comes to Christ and believes in Him. His process looks like being known and understood by Christ. The crucifixion of Christ being applied to him, that his sins would be forgiven, but he doesn't then go to the warden and say, I've repented to Jesus, received the cross of Jesus, you can let me go now. I wish to be free of the consequences of my sins because I'm forgiven. That wouldn't happen, right? But what it would look like, a true faith in Jesus would look like an acceptance of those consequences. Because if he's truly seen himself rightly, seeing what he has done, knowing that he's forgiven by Christ and won't be eternally held accountable for that, that Christ has paid for it. But now in the present life, he accepts those consequences to say, even experiencing these consequences is a grace. That I did commit these things. That old me who did do this, I accept them, and I trust that God will give me the grace to walk through them. Extreme example. But for your life, it's the same thing. My mess is real. My forgiveness is real. And he's going to carry me through it and beyond this. I want to face my consequences and actually bring love to them. I want to help fix them however I can. So it's a prayer here of resurrection. My sins broke me and killed me, but your love mends me and resurrects me. Verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. What does a resurrected version of you look like? Having been known by Christ, died for by Christ, you will then be resurrected with Christ. Your sins are hidden behind the blood of Christ. Your iniquities are blotted out. This is the language we use. Not even God sees them. This gives you permission to let it go. To not be defined by them. Because everything that was needed to make that sin right has been paid for by Jesus. Part of what we say with sins is this. It's so big and so impactful, you can't fix it. God has to die for it. So we're not actually saying sin's a, a small thing, the blood of Jesus covers it, and we treat it flippantly. We're saying it's so big, the Creator of the universe dies to fix it, to mend it, to make what you did to other people right. That's what we're believing. Is Jesus is not only forgiving you, but Jesus is working in the life of that person to the end of days in the recreation of the earth to make it right for them. That's what we're believing. So verse 10, "Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. By this point, the psalmist is fully turned away from sin and has fully set his direction on righteousness. He's now moving forward towards goodness. He's believing that he's forgiven so he can move forward towards goodness. The old heart predisposed toward destruction of self and others has been pierced with Christ's heart on the cross. It's paid for. The new heart is created out of the pure and perfect heart of Jesus. It's the true you in Jesus. You are most yourself when you are recreated in Jesus. You hear me? That's where you feel most yourself. So there's always this fear, I think, in the way of Jesus that if you repent and you allow yourself to die with Christ that you're going to get lost in the process. You're being remade in the process. You are being valued and cherished and and caught from death and destruction. That's why we say we're saved. And so the real you, the best you, the beautiful you is all safeguarded in the hands and heart of Jesus. And he's saying here, a clean heart and a right spirit. So here he's making the shift to go, I'm forgiven for this stuff, and I, I committed these sins from my heart. I committed these sins from my desires unchecked. I committed these sins from my thoughts and then my actions. Now, I'm no longer that person. Now, I'm a clean heart with a right spirit, a right inner life. That my motivations, my will, my desires, my emotions, my thoughts are recreated and reborn in the pure heart of Jesus. Do you want that? Do you want that? That's what we're talking about. This inner you that you have a hard time controlling and don't even understand and don't know why it does what it does, that part of you can be reborn of love and purity and goodness in the person of Jesus. Does that sound like good news? So a clean heart is at work in him. A right spirit is motivating him. Because the way of Jesus is not say sorry and get your crap together. The way of Jesus is see that sin is death, turn and be reborn, recreated by the agency of Jesus to make you able to do the good that you feel you're meant to. To make you fulfill the law of God because it's good for the world, because it loves the world, because it's a benefit to the world. Verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So where there's repentance and forgiveness, the relationship then between you and God is mended. It's a reconciliation. Jesus isn't just covering the sin. He's pulling you into right relationship with God. Sin led us to leave God in a search of fulfillment that failed us. Jesus finds us in unfulfillment, And pulls us back to God and brings us into right relationship with Him. With fulfillment. The relationship though is so close that it's described as a mingling of God's Spirit and your Spirit. So when He's saying, cast me not away from your presence, He's saying, don't let my sins cut me off from being one with you. Instead, the work of Jesus is making you United to the Spirit of God. Isn't that beautiful? So not only is Jesus remaking your heart, He's also giving you the heart of God in the Spirit. And that is working with your new heart to propel you into the beauty that you were made for. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's a homecoming the joy of being saved and restored like the parable of the lost son it's the joy of our foundation or of the joy of our salvation is the foundation of our life this is why we love it as we go this is where i begin and this phrase uphold me lift me love me provide for me uphold me willingly is what he's asking So the idea here is that God, we're not manipulating God or maneuvering God or earning our value from God. Instead, He is authentically, willingly, by His own agency and decision, lifting up your life. Does that sound like blessing? So now God is working to lift Him up. This is what He sees God doing. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So this picture here then is a clean heart, a right spirit, God lifting him up by his spirit in in your spirit, lifting you up into righteousness and goodness. The church often refers to this as holiness, a holy life. God helping you live a good life. And I don't mean American good life. Okay, I mean like Bible good life, loving God, loving your neighbor. Okay. And then verse 13 looks like from this place I will teach transgressors your ways. So once he's firmly established in his reconciliation with God, he's living out his new life. What fills him with passion is this idea that I want to help other people like me know what this feels like. Isn't that beautiful? I want other sinners like me, worse than me, better than me, I want them all to know how good this feels. And I'll teach other sinners this. And this is what I find so profound about the Psalms. Here's the king of Israel being a prophet comes to him to call him out on his sin, to give him consequences, to talk about the fact that the way he's leading and living is going to impact the whole community, the whole nation. And he repents. And this prayer of repentance is then integrated into the nation as part of their consistent prayer life. Isn't that crazy? It's kind of like me doing a colossal screw up in my life, writing a prayer of repentance and then we use that on a consistent basis and I sit right here and you're reminded of that. Isn't that wild? I'm not saying that should be the case in churches. I think what would be healthier for me as a person would be to stop being a pastor. Just follow Jesus. But then you can keep using that prayer and I'll stick around. No, it's probably not good for you if I stick around either. Anyway. We shouldn't talk about this. Okay. The point being a public honesty about sin, believing in the heart of God to save sinners, becomes culturally part of the path that people follow. That's what's being laid out here. And this is a perfect example of what it looks like to lead a home. Your personal repentance is the path on which your children will come to see the goodness of Jesus. You hear me? That's the call of every parent. Is that your repentance is the path that your children are discipled on. where they, You're open about your sin, show how the way of Jesus works for it, and then they learn to do it for themselves. It's not, I am righteous and you are the sinner and I'm here to police you, child. It's, I am a sinner. Let me show you how I'm saved by Jesus. And I think you're a sinner too. You can come enjoy that. So I think the path of discipleship in the church and in the home is paved by the honesty and open repentance of of its most mature. Let me say that again. The path of discipleship in the church and in the home is paved by the honesty and open repentance of the most mature. When I read the saints, that's what I hear in them as they age. They become more repentant, not less. They become more humble more selfless, more gracious, and more others focused the older they get. Nothing they are holding on to but Christ. Verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of Your righteousness. Here we see a full human life. The true humanity looks like being redeemed from harming others breaking our relationship with God and instead looks like enjoying God it looks like happiness in God that is expressed from the mouth he's seen that he wants no longer wants to be harmed to others but wants to give his energy towards praising God Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare Your praise. He's now living for something better. You don't change by trying not to do something. You hear me? You don't change by trying not to do something. You change through living for something better. Here we see he's living to praise, to declare God's praise. He finds true fulfillment in God and gives his heart to that. Verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And here's the crux point. God doesn't want your sacrifices and your promises of change, and neither does anyone else. If you really hurt someone and come back to them and say, these are all the things I'm going to do to change. Does it work? Are they suddenly appeased? I'll give up this so I can love you better like this. Do they go, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. It doesn't do it. And it doesn't work with God. and It doesn't work with one another. Our promises of change are not going to make things better. Our attempts at winning people back aren't going to work. This is what I mean by the unique dignity that the way of Jesus offers us. Those who need and want to change. You aren't the way you are because of lack of effort or commitment or willpower. You are the way you are because of sin at work in every fiber of your being. And the only solution is an intervention of salvation. You hear me? Because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, if I just try harder, I could be better. Bollocks. It doesn't work. It doesn't change you. You need salvation intervention. A better sacrifice needs to be given than the one you can give. One that can actually fix what has been broken. And all that God wants from you and all you are meant to bring to the table is this, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is all God wants from you. Honest, repentant, humble heart. The humble you Perfect, you, those who are willing to get specific about their sin, he does not despise you. He celebrates you. Do you hear me? Some of you think, my sins are so obvious and so terrible. That honesty within you, that self awareness, God adores it. But he wants to save you in those places. This is what true Christianity is. If I'm trying to fix a mess I've made, then I have to get as specific as possible about the sin that Christ is carrying on the cross. That's why the humble, contrite heart is adored by God. Because we're getting specific about what we're seeing, the sacrifice of Jesus working for. Verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Here he recognizes that his sin has impacted the whole community. This is an uncomfortable truth, but no sins are independent of the community. True wholeness or wellness cannot be achieved in independence. And when we sin... It has an impact on this community. It has an impact on the world around us. There's no such thing as a secret or individual sin. All of it contributes to the brokenness of the world. Here, though, he's believing that God's salvation not only works for him as a person, it works for Zion. It works for all of it. All of the impact falls under all of the blessing and the benefits that comes through the cross of Jesus. So the dad or the mom should believe this about how how Christ not only saves them from their sins, but saves their children from their sins. This is how I pray in my repentance. As I'm going through my mind going, forgive me for what I've done against you, against myself, but also how it impacts my wife, how it impacts my kids, how it impacts my church, how it impacts my neighbors. That's how I'm receiving the cross of Jesus. I, want, I don't want to leave things out because the benefit applies. That's the motivation is to go, if this works, then let's use it for everything, for all the problems. And this is what he's starting to do. He's, he's shifting from God has saved me to God saved Zion. If you could do it for me, you could do it for the whole thing. And it actually produces a vision of what a community can look like that's saved. Verse 19. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It sounds like this. What? But in reality, here's what we see. Having just said you don't care about sacrifices because they can't save us. You only care about the true singular sacrifice in Jesus. He's now coming to say the sacrifices, the offerings, the works of a people that have been saved are enjoyable to God. A community made up of individuals who are personally taking responsibility for their own sin and seeking to relate to one another rightly will have institutional functions that are a delight to God. So here's here's what I mean. Where the individuals love true, honest repentance and really believe in the cross of Jesus, they'll actually create, and they're mingling with the Spirit of God, a community that's beautiful. That's essentially what it means. Isn't that the kind of church you want to be a part of? where it's like the things they actually do are beautiful because the things they do aren't covering up for secret, unrepentant sins. See the difference? It doesn't feel like a self-righteous, self-aggrandizing church because they actually believe in Jesus desperately and specifically and honestly. Isn't that rad? That's the prayer. It's a foreshadowing of heaven. That he sees the worship, the gifts, the expressions that will bring God delight, because they've been created in the individuals by God, by his grace. They actually want to offer sacrifices. They want to sing because they are saved, not just in theory, but specifically and in reality and personally. That communal existence foreshadows Christ's new Jerusalem. His new Jerusalem on earth. And church is a foretaste of that life to come. Just these brief moments where we really do repent because we want grace there. We see small incremental growths into righteousness and holiness and goodness that are compelled by God loving us. That these little steps, these little works are authentic and they truly do glorify God because they're God created, God generated. Who's in? Right? Like, well, you look at it, if, if we're just honest humans for a second, we look at it and we go, oh, it just makes so much more sense than these like empty religious practices. We we don't do the prayers of repentance because they're expected of us. We do the prayers of repentance because we need it. We came here for an intervention. We came here for a breakthrough to go. My life is struggling and I need grace. I need help. I need God to do something. And isn't that what we've been asking for? God, do something. And the answer is, I have. In Jesus. So we want to believe in the one whom he has sent for the specific needs that we brought in. Do you hear me? So, right now, if you're comfortable with it, go to a quiet space. You can close your eyes. What are the needs you brought in? What are the sins you've been carrying?